children, I want to begin talking to you this morning. And I want you to think about what are you afraid of? Things that you are afraid of. You might be afraid of snakes. Are any of you afraid of snakes? Some adults in the room. Spiders? Are spiders worse than snakes? <laughs> oh yeah, now we're getting somewhere. Are you afraid of the dark? Are you afraid of being alone? Yes. I remember being afraid of all those things, and there's no shame in being afraid of those things. Sometimes fear is actually good for us. It keeps us from danger sometimes. Uh, if you come to a fire, or if there's a hot stove, and you're afraid you might get burned, that'll keep you from doing it, right? In that way, fear is good for you. Or if you're afraid of going out in the street, is that a good thing? Yeah, because that will keep you from running into the street where cars are going past. So sometimes fear can be a, a good thing and preserve us, keep us safe. But sometimes fear can keep us from being happy. Have you ever thought about that? Mm, maybe when you were younger, you were afraid of the water and swimming in the water, jumping in the water to mommy and daddy. And if you were afraid of that, it kept you from having fun in the pool. I remember I was afraid of the water at one time, too. And it kept me from having fun. Or if you're afraid of sliding down the slide, it can keep you from being happy from the fun of sliding down a slide. Well, parents and adults, we can relate to all those things as well. Sometimes fear is a good thing for us, and it preserves us from danger. It pres preserves our souls or our bodies. But sometimes fear in other ways can keep us from being happy. It can keep us from doing things which will bring us genuine joy. And sometimes especially, fear can keep us from experiencing the joy of having God's favor. It can paralyze us from joyful obedience. Perhaps the greatest fear of all is the fear of death, which can paralyze us in this life, which can keep us from having joy in this life because we know what is to come. A simple statement that even the kids can take along with them is, because Jesus died for us, we no longer have to be afraid. Because Jesus died for us, we no longer have to be afraid. From our passage, a theme concerning Jesus' death and a theme statement could be this as well. Jesus' death was an act of war against evil and for the sake of God's people. We come to a place where we have been talking about our confession in the Apostles' Creed, particularly related to Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. And when we confess that Jesus died and was buried, we are confessing the reality of that, that Jesus' heart stopped beating, that his lungs stopped filling with air, that he stopped exhaling, that his brain function ceased. We are confessing that reality, that he really died. He didn't just appear to die. But we are confessing more than that as well, aren't we? 
We're not simply confessing that Jesus died. We are, we're confessing in that confession that there is a theological significance to his death. That his death accomplished some things. That his death affected some things. That his death did something. Jesus' death was an act of war against the devil and evil and death for the sake of God's people. And I think that's how we could proclaim the truth of our passage of Scripture this morning. Jesus, in his death, destroys the devil and he delivers God's people. And this is why we have no need to fear anymore. Did you hear that? Jesus, in his death, destroyed the devil. And he delivered you, brothers and sisters. And you no longer have to fear in this life. So we'll look at these two results from Jesus' death found in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Uh, first, we'll consider by his death, Jesus destroys the devil in verse 14. And the context of this, this passage, you could flip back in the book of Hebrews and See what the author is going about doing. He is proclaiming the excellency and supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is greater than all. He is supreme over all. He is, God has spoken in many ways throughout history, but now he has spoken in his Son. And then he spends a significant a part of chapters 1 and 2 speaking of how Jesus is superior to the angels. Of which one of the angels did God say, Behold, you are my son, and I am your father? The answer, none of them. Jesus is God's son, and God is his father. But also, he has given him a throne, an everlasting throne, which was promised to him through his ancestor David. He has a throne. He is the king of this everlasting kingdom which will go on forever and ever. Not only that, though, He is the one who created all things. You laid the foundation of all that exists. He is supreme over angels. In all these ways, He is supreme over angels. And then finally, we see that He is supreme over angels and that He is the founder of the salvation for God's people that he has affected our salvation. And then in the verses preceding our passage, we see how it was necessary for Jesus to be a man, to be a human. The author of Hebrews points back to Psalm 8 and speaks of how the Messiah was crowned with glory and honor, and the author of Hebrews says it was because of his death. In other words, his faithful obedience to the Father in submitting himself to the plan of God into death that he was seen to be faithful and therefore crowned with glory and honor. And it was fitting in order to be the founder of their salvation that he would perfect it through suffering. And in verse 14, we see that just as the children share in flesh and blood, that is, humans, all humans share in the same humanity, so he himself likewise partook, 
It's that word koinonia. He partook. He participated in everything that it means to be a human being. This is what we spoke about two weeks ago in the suffering of Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered in the human experience. Everything that it means for you to suffer as a human, Jesus has endured that. And yet he has done so without sin. Beating back every temptation he faced. He, he partook of these same things, the Hebrew says, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. By his death, Jesus destroys the devil. Now, you might look at this phrase, that he might destroy the devil, that he might destroy him, and you might think it's a, an uncertainty, that we're not sure if he actually accomplished, accomplished his goal or not. And yet the way that the author here is speaking is that this is a, an act of purpose. This is, he died in order that he would accomplish this particular task, defeating the one who has power of death, the devil. And in this sense, it is no uncertainty at all. It is, has been accomplished by Jesus' death. He has destroyed the devil. Now what does it mean that this one, the devil, has power over death. That he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Well, I think it speaks to Satan's power in death, which is particularly inducing humans to sin. It, it began with Adam and Eve in the garden when the devil induced them into sin, and what did they incur as a result? What was their wage as a result of their sin? It was death. Not simply a, a physical death of the separation of your body and soul, but a real and spiritual sort of death in which you are now found guilty before God. The, the power that Satan has in death is his ability to induce people to sin, to blind them to, to belief in Christ, to blind them to the truth of the gospel, so that they would experience that which is truly death. Because of the gospel and because of Christ, the separation of body and soul is not that which is truly death. That which is truly death is having a God which is against you for all eternity. Being in relationship to, a, to God as an enemy for all of eternity. That is that which is truly death. And that comes from the result of sin. So he destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil. What does it mean to destroy the devil? Because it, it often seems like the devil is still active and at work and it, he exists in the world, right? We see all kinds of evil all around the world, in our own lives, throughout our nation? What does it mean that he destroyed the devil? The word speaks to, really, a nullification of the devil's ability and work. He has been nullified. He's been stamped null and void because of the death of Jesus Christ. It may seem at times that he does have a, a certain extent of the power, and I think this is related to what we call the already and not yet of the kingdom of God. The devil has already been defeated and destroyed 
once and for all by the death of Christ. And yet we will see a time when his destruction is finalized. When his doom is sealed and he is done forever. And yet he continues to to strive and fight. It's almost like when my friend and I walked up to uh, a strange dog in someone's yard. We were lost and trying to find our way, and there was a dog there. And he jumped up my, at my friend, and he was, had sharp teeth, and he had a loud bark, but he was hooked up to a chain. He couldn't get to us. And in the same way, Satan has sharp fangs and a loud bark, but he is on a chain. And on the other end of the chain is the Lord. He can do nothing apart from the sovereignty of God. He is on a leash, we could say. I'm thankful for some friends who shared this illustration, reminded me of this illustration earlier this week. On April 9, 1865, Robert E. Lee surrendered his troops to General Ulysses S. Grant. And yet, it would be another 16 months of fighting before the war was officially over before all the battles had ceased and there was an official declaration by Andrew Johnson. At that point, fighting continued in South Carolina and in Georgia and Alabama. The news hadn't reached them yet that they've already surrendered. That in large measure, General Lee and the next general who surrendered all but spelled the end of the fighting. On May 10th, there was an armed resi- uh, one of the, the leaders of the Confederacy said, armed resistance is essentially futile. <laughs> we can all but say that we have completely lost the battle. And yet, still in Texas, the news still hadn't reached. And the fighting continued for 16 months. Over a year, the fighting continued until August 20th, 1866. The war was completely over, and yet, in certain pockets, battles were raging. People were dying still. People were fighting. And in a similar way, we could say this about the destruction of Satan. His doom is sure. It's all but a foregone conclusion. Yet he still rages. He still barks. He still is trying to do whatever he can so that, if possible, he might pull away the elect of God. And yet we know he will not accomplish it. He has been defeated by Jesus Christ in his death. And that is such good news to us. His effectiveness has been nullified. It changes how we perceive our daily temptations. It changes how we look at the fights, the battles, the spiritual fight that, we are taking, that takes place on a daily basis. We could also say the fear of the devil and fear of evil should be tempered. It should be moderated. In other parts of the scripture, it's still, we're still told that the devil prowls like a lion, seeking whom he can devour. And yet, because of the death of Jesus Christ, our fear of the devil can be tempered. We know that ultimately God is in control and that his death, Jesus' death spells a certain doom for Jesus. Well, consider how you go about your own battles with temptation and sin. 
How you battle within your mind, how you battle the temptations of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. Sometimes you approach these battles as though you were completely defeated. As though you couldn't possibly overcome a particular sin or temptation. That you're helpless against them. Well, the death of Jesus Christ reminds us and empowers us now to fight with a new boldness, with a new courage, not in our own strength, but wrapped up in the death of Jesus Christ and then in His resurrection and His pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus died, you can now face these temptations with a greater boldness, knowing that in Christ Jesus, the war is over. And you can fight these battles with courage, not thinking that you're, you're defeated or helpless against them. He has equipped you by the gospel and by the word of God to put to death the deeds of the body, the sins of the body. Changes our perspective and how we fight sin and how we fight fear and doubt and gives us a new hope because of Jesus' work for us. Notice in the rest of the passage, verses 15 to 17, also by Jesus' death, Jesus delivers God's people. By his death, Jesus delivers God's people. This is a similar type of word here to the purpose of defeating or destroying Satan. Uh, that he, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of the death and that he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Again, it's not an uncertainty. It is a certain certainty of accomplishing this purpose for which Jesus died, that he might deliver his people, that he might set them free, that he might rescue them. Well, what does he deliver God's people from? He delivers them from a slavery under the fear of death. He delivers them from a lifelong slavery under the fear of death. And this reminds each one of us of the status which we once had in this world without Christ. Lifelong slavery. Before Christ, you were enslaved. You were in chains. And in particular, he says, to the... uh, Fear of death, lifelong slavery under the fear of death. Well, what does it mean to be under slavery to the fear of death? Well, there's a part of us in which we might say ignorance, the ignorance of death and what happens with death. There's a certain fear involved in that because we're afraid because we don't know what's coming next. I think that's a part of it, but I think there's more more to it as well. When I was 17 years old, I got my second ticket within one year. And I had to go to court. I've never been to court when I wasn't afraid. But I had to go to court. And I was afraid. I was a young man and I was afraid of what was going to happen. And I had to actually go up in front of the judge. And since my name is Upchurch, I had to wait till everybody else had had their turn. And it's just weighing on me the whole time. And part of the fear was ignorance. I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I'd never been to court before. I, I was afraid because I didn't know what was coming. But a bigger part of the fear was because I was guilty. That I knew what I had done was wrong. 
and that I would face consequences for my actions. And that fear as I sat on those benches and waited for my name to be called just grew and grew and grew because I knew what was coming when I stood before the judge. I was guilty. And in the same way, our fear of death springs not only from our ignorance, but from our guilt. Without Christ, you are absolutely guilty before God. And it, I think every human knows this too. That, that we have sinned, that we will one day meet our Creator. We will stand before our Creator and we know that we are guilty. If we don't think we're guilty of breaking God's law, we know we're guilty of breaking the laws we've made for ourselves. And we will stand before our Creator and give an account for everything that we have done in the body. Now this guilt can be pushed down. It can be suppressed so that through a certain callousness we stop feeling the prick of our guilt so that we can suppress in some way the fear of facing our Creator in death and yet ultimately it will not do. In moments of silence as our heads rest on our pillows that guilt resurfaces and we're reminded each one of us will face our Creator and without Christ we will be guilty. This is lifelong slavery under the fear of death. It keeps us from being able to, to live life for God's glory, keeps us from being able to enjoy life. Those who are rebellious against God, it keeps them ultimately if they are not able to suppress this fear and this guilt, it keeps them from joy because they know one day they will have to give an account for all that they have done. It's like a chained criminal who's simply waiting for his day of execution. But Jesus, by his death, has delivered you, brothers and sisters, from lifelong slavery under the fear of death. You've been rescued. Those of you who are of faith, he says, he, he helps not the angels, but the children of Abraham. He doesn't mention Adam. He doesn't mention the children of Adam. That is all humans. But the children of Abraham, those who are of faith, those who come to God in faith, looking to his Messiah, the one through whom he has spoken, the one through whom he has conquered the devil and death, and he has rescued us, the people of God, the children of Abraham through his death. Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Are you a child of Abraham? Men and women and children and teenagers, boys and girls, have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Or are you simply coming to church because you have to, because it's out of habit, or because you're grudgingly having to wake up in the morning and, and come and hear this guy speak from the Bible? I plead with you, I urge you to receive the gospel to place your faith in Jesus, and then this will be true of you. If you don't come to faith in Him, you will continue to be in lifelong slavery to the fear of death. But if you come to Him, faith in Him, if you embrace Jesus Christ by faith, this one who died, this one whose body became limp and lifeless for sinners, embrace Him by faith and you will be rescued also from the fear of death. 
Jesus is said to be a great high priest in this passage. Verse 17, that's why he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that, another purpose, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. A priest has a relationship with both humans and with God. He is a mediator. He is a go-between between God and man. It says Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. Merciful speaking to his relationship to the people. He's able to sympathize with us in our weakness. He wants to have mercy on us. He wants good for us. He wants favor to us. And faithful speaks to his relationship to God Almighty. Well, thinking back over the history of Israel, surely there were priests who had neither mercy toward man nor faithfulness to God. Perhaps there were some who had mercy toward their brothers of Israel. And yet it could never be said of any one of them ultimately that they had a true faithfulness toward God. They could serve as a merciful high priest, but they couldn't actually serve as a faithful high priest. And here in the person of Jesus Christ, we have those two meeting in the middle. One who has full compassion for the people of God. He is a merciful high priest to you. He cares for you. He loves you. And yet he is also completely faithful in his relationship with God. Every moment of his life, perfectly obeying the Father's will with a perfect attitude. And because of this, he is able to serve as a faithful high priest for you and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because of his mercy to us, his people, he willingly gave his life for ours as a sacrifice for us. Though he had done nothing wrong, as it is said in Isaiah 53. He was numbered among the transgressors. Though he had done nothing wrong, he made his grave with the wicked. Though he had done nothing wrong, he willingly gave his life as a sacrifice for yours, brothers and sisters in Christ, because he is a merciful high priest. And because he is faithful, he is able to offer himself as a pure and spotless and perfect sacrifice before God, which would be pleasing to him. There's nothing you could have ever offered that would have been ultimately pleasing to God. It's filled with your own selfishness or sin or self-righteousness, and yet when Jesus offered himself up to God the Father as a perfect sacrifice, the Father was absolutely pleased. And now, for you who come to faith in Jesus Christ, this is how he looks at you. With favor. Jesus has turned away the wrath of God from you in his death. And instead, he gives you his favor. In the recent remake of the TV series Lost in Space, a Netflix series, they put a little bit of a different spin on this, this TV series. The Robinsons are a family and they travel through space and they try to survive these difficult challenges in space and they encounter a dangerous alien robot. And he is a fighting machine. He, is, he looks wicked. He looks strong and powerful. He's built for destruction. He can do anything he wants, ultimately. 
And when his face glows in a red color, you know he is ready to destroy. He is angry. And he is able, like I said, to take out anyone in his path. And yet the little boy, Will Robinson, comes to him and the robot's face is aglow in red and Will Robinson helps this alien robot who had been injured. And as a result, the alien robot's face turns a luminescent blue, which signals his friendliness and his favor towards you. And he becomes a friend to Will Robinson because of his work, his kindness to him. And in the death of Jesus Christ, the red face of God's anger was turned directly on Jesus Christ as he absorbed the full wrath of God that you had earned by your sin. Jesus willingly took it upon himself. And now because of Jesus' death, the face of kindness lights upon you who are in Christ Jesus. God now has a disposition of favor towards you who are in Christ. Does that ever feel to you like God is still angry with you? That you feel the burning anger against you for your sin? That you're not sure if He's going to receive you? Be assured that because of the death of Jesus Christ, God looks upon you with favor, with joy. Can you believe that, brothers and sisters? Because of Christ, He looks through Christ to you and it brings joy to the Father because of the obedience of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for you. And then how ought we then, how ought we to live in light of these truths? How ought we to to live now that we have been delivered from fear? What courage ought that to give us? Now that we have been delivered from guilt, what joy should we have in Christ as we walk in this world before the Father? Having been delivered from death, having been delivered from the wrath of God. We are to walk now as those who have been delivered by the death of Jesus Christ, who walk in the light of God's love and joy. We are to worship Him with joy. The author of Hebrews goes on to say, consider Jesus. His, his application to all these things is, consider Jesus, consider Him, behold Him, worship Him because of His goodness to you in His death by defeating the devil and delivering you from lifelong slavery under the fear of death. And then he says, exhort one another. Exhort one another daily to carry on this walk. Exhort one another, brothers and sisters, in the gospel. Take initiative with one another day in and day out for some brother, for some sister, for someone sharing them the results of Jesus' death for you. That they too might walk in the newness of life and the freedom and joy of having God's favor. Let's pray together.